Morning, everybody. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. This is my first time to get to preach not in Isaiah since January. And I'm excited. I love Isaiah, but I also love all the rest of the Bible too. As you turn there, listen to this from Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you just uh, repeat that piece by piece with me as we look into God's perfect word that gives freedom? Um, Would you repeat this after me? Open my eyes eyes. that I may behold behold wondrous things things out of your law. law. That's a, a prayer that we can pray together that David gives us in Psalm 119. Oh, Lord. Open my eyes, Lord, open our eyes this morning that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, would you help us do that this morning, that we would behold wondrous things, new things, Lord, that our soul would be consumed with longing for your word at all times, Lord, that we'd be consumed with your word, your law, your precepts, your testimonies. Thank you, Lord, that the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is good. It's righteous. It makes the the simple wise. It's better than honey. It's better than silver or gold. And your servant is greatly rewarded in, in paying attention to your word. So, Lord, open our eyes today as we look at your word in Philippians chapter four. We thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so Philippians 4, verse 4, this is our text for today. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. My plea for us today is that we would rejoice in the Lord always in every circumstance and in every situation. That's my plea is that we would be a rejoicing people. So uh, have you ever been around someone that no matter what you do for them, you can't seem to get them to be happy or satisfied? Have you ever been around that kind of person? You, you can't seem to satisfy their longings, their desires, and they find a way to be dissatisfied about something all the time. They're like, I'm hungry. And you're like, here's a burrito. And they're like, I don't like burritos. Okay. I'm thirsty. Here's some water. I don't like water. I want something else. Uh, I'm tired. Hey, how about you go take a nap? I don't like naps. Who doesn't like naps? Starling. Okay. There's always one. You don't like naps, Luke? <laughs> Just give it about three months and you will love naps. I promise. <laughs> You can give people exactly what they want, and yet their dissatisfaction will just keep rising to the top. You can even send somebody on vacation, and people can complain on vacation. Have you heard that before? Maybe you're the the person that that has that heart. And uh, I see myself in this situation often. And today we see in Philippians that Paul is writing to his Philippian partners To have joy and rejoicing in the Lord always at all times in every situation. 
So just real uh, a quick overview of Philippians to get us caught up to where we're going to be. Paul is giving the, the, the plea to the Philippians to be a joyful and rejoicing people at all times and in every situation. So just a quick flyover. Listen to me or listen with me to this. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 1, rejoice and be glad even in prison. He says in 1, 16 and 18, even when others are out to get you with false motives, 1, 19 through 21, even when you might be put to death for the sake of the gospel, rejoice even when you suffer for the name of Christ in 1, 27 through 29, rejoice even when you seek out others' interests above your own interests, just like Christ did in 2, 1 through 11. Rejoice even when you are surrounded by an evil and perverse generation, 2, 12 through 16. Rejoice and be glad even when you are poured out like a sacrificial drink offering upon your faith, 2, 17 and 18. Rejoice when you are caring for someone else's needs like Timothy. Rejoice even when you have to say goodbye to a fellow worker, Paul to Epaphroditus in 2, 19 through 30. Even when people are seeking to attack you for clinging to Christ, those enemies of the cross in chapter 3, 1 to 19. Paul says, rejoice while you await a savior, a savior to come and rescue you, 3, 20 through 21. Rejoice in the midst of conflict and disunity in 4, 1 through 3. Rejoice always in the Lord, no matter the circumstance, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in any and every circumstance with Jesus as your strength, Philippians 4, 10 through 13, and rejoice in gospel partnerships and God's provision in 4, 14 through 20. And rejoice when the gospel reaches the most guarded places in 4, 21 through 23. So today we're going to focus in right on chapter 4, verse 4, and break it down throughout looking at the, the book of Philippians. I don't necessarily even have points today. I'm just going to take Philippians 4, 4, and we have rejoice. In the Lord, always. So if, you have, if you're taking points, those are the points. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I say rejoice. That's point four if we make it there. But I don't know. My goal is that we would be a church that is always rejoicing in the Lord. So some quick info on Philippians. Philippians was written to a Roman veterans colony. We learned that in Acts chapter 16. These are probably first or second generation Christians fighting for the advancement of the gospel on a tough front. They were surrounded by an evil and perverse generation. They were hurting and suffering. They were engaged in conflict. But they were to be a joy-filled people in the midst of this campaign. A purpose statement that's been helpful for me for Philippians is to that the Paul wrote the book of or the letter of Philippians to encourage the Philippian partners in their terrifying, though joyous campaign to advance the gospel by focusing on a selfless mindset that produces a unified front. I'll say that one more time. I, I believe the purpose statement of the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to do this, to encourage the Philippian partners in their terrifying, though joyous campaign to advance the gospel by focusing on a selfless mindset that produces a unified front. So Paul and the Philippians were partners for the advancement of the gospel. We learned that in chapter 4 and in chapter 1, verse 5. So we have uh, to look at this entire letter as we come to chapter 4, verse 4, as Paul encouraging the Philippians in this encouraging gospel advance, advancement partnership. 
happening in Rome, where Paul was in house arrest in prison, and in Philippi at the same time, 900 miles away, yet there's two conflicts going on for the advancement of the gospel at the same time. One gospel war, many gospel battlefronts. And this would actually make a lot of sense to the Philippians, right? Because uh, the largest land battle in Roman history happened one mile outside of Philippi. The largest land battle. And so the, the many of the people that lived in Philippi were uh, Roman veterans that had fought in that battle and their sons. And, you know, you passed that all down. And these people would, would think through the lens of war, battle, army. Brothers and sisters, we are also partners in gospel advancement. Throughout the week, we have dozens of little battle lines drawn from our church. And the Lord Jesus is advancing his gospel through your battlefront, through where you are working. You are engaged in this fight at your job, in your home, with your kids, through your marriage, at your school, to your neighbors. You are on a gospel front. You are part of this big overall partnership that the Lord is using your little space to advance the gospel to places where it has not been before. And you are engaged in this conflict. So I want us to see clearly today that our rejoicing in this passage says that our rejoicing is to be in the Lord. Our our rejoicing specifically in this passage. So Philippians, there's a lot of other things that Paul tells them to rejoice in. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in unity. Rejoice in Epaphroditus. Rejoice in provision. But here, Paul says that we rejoice always in and through and because of the Lord. We do not rejoice in our circumstances because they are always moving. The plea that Paul gives in 4.4 is not to complain in the Lord or whine in the Lord or pity in the Lord or sulk in the Lord or judge in the Lord or be neutral in the Lord. But the plea in the exhortation today is to rejoice in the Lord. And it's no more a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. If you remember that all the way back from the Isaiah 12 sermon, it's no more not a sin to not rejoice than not to repent. We're a commanded people. We're an urged people to rejoice. So this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, happens three times in the letter to the Philippians. And it is only located in Philippians in this way. So throughout all Paul's writings, the only place where he says rejoice in the Lord is right here in Philippians. That's interesting, right? He doesn't use this phrase anywhere else. He does talk about rejoicing in other places. But right here is where he uses the term rejoice in the Lord. Once in chapter 3, verse 1, once in 4, 4, and once in 4, 10. So let's start with the word rejoice. Rejoice. The definition of rejoicing in the Lord, and this has been difficult to to nail down. Um, The word rejoice actually comes from two Greek words that were kind of fused together. Um... And uh, actually was used as a greeting in the first century. So you could use it as a, 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 like a, an urging, like, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Or you could use it as a greeting, karete. And you would like see that, say that to somebody when they were walking down the street. Karete, karete. 
Um, when I first started taking Greek at Midwestern when I was 19, we had a professor from Romania, Dr. Gorgitsa, and he would start every class by saying, Chirain. And uh, we would all, all of us would say Chirain back to him. And I didn't actually piece all those things together until recently that the, the greeting was fused together to remind people to have a joyful disposition in the grace of God in their lives. The greeting was meant to encourage people. Don't forget. Have a joyful and content and delighted disposition toward the grace of God in your life. And I don't know the whole history of when the word got created. There's a lot of background there. Um, but this was a wide greeting across Greek uh, lands. It's all over Greek literature. People would use it. And it's the greeting that Jesus uses after he comes out of the tomb and he finds Mary there. He says, Kyrene. He says, or Kyrete to them. Greetings. Uh, in James chapter 1, verse 2, uh, to the brothers, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, Kyrete, greetings. That, that word greetings also comes across. And we see it here in Philippians 4 4 as an imperative, which uh, in, in, the, in the Greek grammar, an imperative would come across with urgency. Carson and I were talking about this the other day. Many times uh, an imperative signals a command like, go get the milk. That would be an imperative. But here, it, it, it's not so much a command that Paul's giving them, but more so an, an urgent plea. Brothers, rejoice in the Lord always. It's an exhortation to them. So a definition for rejoicing is uh, a continual joyful disposition toward the grace of God in your life. That's what I'm giving as a definition for rejoicing. It's a joyful disposition. Rejoicing is a disposition, a feeling, a, a state of being that we live in compared to like joy, which bubbles out to the top. And so rejoicing is even deeper than that in our lives. And I believe this is why Paul tells us to rejoice always, to have this disposition always. A couple other ways to, to help us think about rejoicing is to have joy or delight in the Lord. Remember the grace of God in your life or to feel joy when you think of him always. A couple other places that Paul uses rejoice like this, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace and of love will be with you. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Neither Paul nor the Philippian partners were in the midst of living an easy life. Paul in house arrest in Rome awaiting trial, which he could be killed in a moment's notice. And the Philippian partners who were engaged in a terrifying campaign in Philippi for the advancement of the gospel. They were engaged in the conflict, a battle, a struggle. And Paul's marching orders, his, his encouragement to these brothers and sisters is this. How are you going to make it through this difficult season? You're going to rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Rejoice. Always. 
rejoice always. If you ask me, or if you probably ask you, you probably don't feel like rejoicing all the time. You don't feel like it, right? You, you, you don't feel like rejoicing. But then when you add always onto the end of that, it's rejoice all the time, always. How, how do we do that? I believe this is a, a timely word. This is a plea from Paul, and it's a good one. This is a charge, and it's a needed one. It's an urging, and it's one we must fight for. This is an encouragement, and it is to be a kind one for us. The exhortation to rejoice may seem like the most difficult thing for us to do. How could we rejoice? Do you know what's going on in my life, Paul? That's what the Philippians were were doing. Uh, Epaphroditus in chapter 3 had gone all the way to Rome with this box of money to support Paul. And he gives the report of Philippi to Paul. And Paul decides that he needs to write this letter back to a suffering people. He can tell from Epaphroditus these people are in a difficult spot. And so Paul needs to write back to them and remind them that they don't only have to rejoice, they get to rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoicing always seems like a difficult exhortation, a hard command. How could I rejoice in this moment? How could I lift up my voice in this moment? How could I sing right now? How could I have joy? How could I do that? Seems like a difficult exhortation until we look at the direct object of our rejoicing in the sentence. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord because of the Lord. The Tyndale commentary says in the Lord may signify because you belong to the Lord. Rejoice because you belong to the Lord. Rejoice because of what the Lord has done for you. Rejoice. We as Christians are admonished to rejoice always, but we are exhorted to rejoice in the Lord in this verse. In fact, he says it twice in the same sentence. He sandwiches it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you look at it in Greek, it says kairete, da 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 da, kairete. That's the bread. In the Lord is the lettuce, tomato, onion, ham, turkey, whatever else you want to put on your sandwich. It's a good sandwich. Kairete sandwich. So again, the definition of rejoicing is that we get to have joy, delight in the Lord, have a have a disposition, a continual disposition toward the grace of joyful disposition toward the grace of God in our life. So what are other things we tend to rejoice in? We tend to look forward to things that we can rejoice in. Small temporal things. We look for our joy and our happiness. Instead, let us find deep rejoicing in the grace of God. Last night, Abby and I were at a, a wedding Um, a Somali wedding, and there were a lot of people rejoicing there. And probably about 17,000 selfies taken over the course of the five hours that we were there. And you could tell just from being around that group of people what what people tended to drift toward rejoicing in. One guy I was talking to, he's like, I can't wait till we eat. I am so hungry. That was at 1045 at night. We ate at 1230 a.m. That dude had to wait another hour and 15 minutes before he got his midnight snack. But he was looking forward to that so that he could rejoice. He was in a bad mood. He's like, I can't wait till I get some food. Somebody else, the bride changes five different times over the night. So she comes in the first time. 
And they like dancing and stuff. And everyone's dancing and hollering and hooting and stuff. And then she goes back out. And then like an hour later, she comes back in wearing different clothes. And five times. And so I felt at times that I was going to rejoice by the time she finally got out the last time. So that, that we could keep the thing going. But we do that, don't we? we? We look forward to other things to rejoice in. I can't wait till I go to bed. I can't wait till I get that burrito that Joseph talked about earlier. I can't wait. And when I get that, I know it'll satisfy my soul and I will rejoice. But has that ever happened for you? Has your soul actually ever been satisfied by a burrito? I'm looking at Garrett. Yes? Okay, not. (laughs) How wise. So, brothers and sisters, we rejoice, but we rejoice in the Lord. Can you remember back to a time when you had no way to obey this plea? You had no way to live out the the plea and the exhortation. You rejoice in the Lord. Can you remember at a time if someone were to tell you that, hey, Mario, rejoice in the Lord. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I I am not able in any way to do what you're telling me to do. Can you remember that kind of time when you didn't know how good he was? You didn't know who he was. A time where you were sitting If you were sitting in this building listening to this text in this sermon, you would think, why in the world would I rejoice in the Lord? I don't know him. What's the Lord going to do for me? My situation is bad right now. And you want me just to be happy about it and have some kind of joy in God? Look at the verse right before 4.4 at the very end. Paul is working through this disunity in the church. He starts in 127 and he says, therefore, be good citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Then he goes on and then 4-3, 4-2 and 4-3 is the end of the letter body. So four, or 127, he starts the letter body. Only be good citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in 4-2 and 4-3, look at this. I entreat Euodia and and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So Paul is taking the letter and from the begin or the, the middle of the letter body, he's framing it all around getting these two ladies to agree in the Lord Side by side for the faith, the hope of the gospel. But at the very end of that verse, in verse 3, it says, Whose names are written in the book of life. Everybody see that on the page there? So the last thing that he says before he says rejoice in the Lord always is, Names are written in the book of life. Is that you? Is your name written in the book of life. Can you remember a time, maybe that time is even right now, when you would hear an exhortation like this and you would say, you know what? You know what I want to rejoice in? I want to rejoice in food or movies or air conditioning or money or pleasure. You know what? Jesus, if you can make my situation better, yeah, maybe I would rejoice in you. Jesus, can you do something for me? Then I would rejoice in you. So many people say that even during evangelism conversations, right? You might 
you might meet somebody and you say, how can I pray for you? What can I pray for? If you could have anything, what would it be? They often say, oh, I could use a job or I could use some good health or I could use some peace or I could use some money or I could use some good vibes. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has already done something for us and for you. Why would we need anything else? And the thing that he has done gives us great reason to rejoice. Jesus made an end to all of your sin because a sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, all of us without Christ are dead in our sins. All of us are sinful sinners. We have inherited a sinful nature from Adam passed down to all people. And we have a great problem. We have offended a righteous and holy God. This God isn't just any God. This God is the creator of all things. God, the he created you, God. He made you. He knows you. And he himself gives all things life and breath and everything else. He alone is good and he demands good from his creation. He will hold every single person accountable in his creation. And in fact, he demands perfection from his creation. And here's where the problem lies. We're all imperfect people. And there isn't anything that we can do to make ourselves right with God. Because even if we were to want to do good and please God, all of our good deeds are like righteous or like all of our good or righteous deeds are like dirty rags that we would bring before the judge and say, here's why you shouldn't judge me. God is just and he will pay back every person for what they have done for good or for evil. He will just uh, he will justly give to each one what they deserve. The payment for living a sinful life is death. The payment, the wages for sin is death. God will pour out this penalty on Every sinner. Just to think. About what this penalty for sin might be. If God is completely holy and perfect and good. If God is righteous and if there is no way to pay off your sin debt before God. What might the punishment be for sin? The Bible says that the payment of sin is death and death eternal. In eternity of suffering, the payment and penalty of your sin on earth right now. Some of the worst sentences that have happened for horrendous crimes that have happened around the world, even in the last hundred years. One lady in Thailand, she was sentenced to one hundred and forty one thousand seventy eight years. One hundred forty one thousand seventy eight years for committing fraud. $300 million that she stole from people. She got away with it for like 20 years. And in court, she was sentenced to 141,078 years in prison. That's impossible, right? Even if we like figured out a way to keep people alive a little bit longer. 141,000 years. Another guy who murdered a bunch of people, he was sentenced to 161 life sentences plus 9,300 years parole. And then he would pay off his sin 
to the government, to the society. Another man, he was given 74 life sentences plus 2,020 years of parole. And then he would have paid off his penalty for his sin. Another guy, two life sentences, not as bad, but then they gave him 10,000 more years after that. That's about the most that a human could do to somebody else to show them the weight of the sin that they caused, right? And our sin has stored up for us an even greater sentence. The sentence of death and death for eternity. And that is for anyone who's not in Christ. But God shows amazing love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus traded his perfect life for our sinful life. And in Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11, it says that Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that anyone who would repent from their sinful life and trust in Christ to be an end to all their sin. That they would be made alive to God through Jesus. If anyone would look to Christ. He'll take their sin and the debt away completely. He already suffered the punishment of your sin on the cross. And even more than that, he will give you his righteousness, his perfection, his status as a son of God. An illustration that is often used throughout scripture is this idea of a cup. And it's like you're standing there on judgment day and you're guilty and you know it. And you're standing there before God and he looks at you and you don't know what to say, what to do. And then the angel bailiff, I don't know what that actually looks like on judgment day, hands you this cup of God's wrath, eternal wrath. And you're standing there. You know you're guilty. You know you deserve the penalty of your sin toward a righteous and holy God. And now you stand under the weight of God's judgment. And the way that the Bible talks about it is that sinners in judgment must drink this cup of God's wrath. And his anger against their sin. And this cup will surely destroy you. 10,000 times over. It would be too much for you. And as soon as you started drinking this horrible cup of God's wrath, you would never stop. But then Jesus comes over and he takes the cup from your hand. And he drinks it. And you expect him to like maybe take a sip, like take part of your punishment. But he keeps drinking. And then he hands the cup back to you. And you're standing there in amazement. What what just happened? The cup is. You expect it maybe to have a little bit left in it. Maybe some drops of God's wrath that you would still have to pay for on your own. But 
but he hands the cup back to you, it's not empty. It's actually full of living water. It's full of all the riches of God's grace toward you. It's full of his righteousness and his holiness. And he gives it back to you, a gift you don't deserve. And you now hold this cup in your hands and everything fades in your entire existence. No other thing matters. You've been delivered from eternal punishment from your sin. You've been given eternal joy and peace in a moment. And what did you do? You stood there and you watched Jesus drink down the penalty of your sin. Your cup of God's wrath against your sin. You, you watched Jesus just drink it down and take it. You saw him suffer. You saw him shake. And then he hands it back to you. And he loves you. And he wants to continue an eternal relationship with you. He's not angry at you for what you did to him. That he had to come over there, take your cup of wrath and drink it down on your behalf. And he doesn't roll his eyes at you. He doesn't turn his back on you. He isn't going to bring the cup up later. Do you remember what I did for you? And now this is what you do to me. He actually opens his arms and embrace and he brings you in and he says, you are mine. Brothers and sisters, rejoicing starts in the mind with true thinking about your situation. Look at Paul throughout this letter. He's rejoicing in prison. He's rejoicing in Christ being proclaimed even at his own demise. He's rejoicing in the sight of possible death. He's rejoicing in the Lord always because he knows the trustworthiness of Jesus. And so rejoicing starts in the mind with what we know, the head. We have to know who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done. And then that moves into our heart. And it creates in us this joyful disposition that cannot be taken away. And why? Why is Paul doing this? Gaining Jesus was better than anything else. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21... Paul's rejoicing because he knows that Jesus will bring his lowly, humbled body to be like his glorious heavenly body when that Savior comes back to take us home. In the chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul rejoices because Jesus has already supplied all things for him and he has no need for anything else. And he rejoices because Jesus is the name above all names. And Jesus has been given the name the Lord. He is above all things and in him all things hold together. He has all authority and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus the Lord. So then the plea, the only plea that makes sense is rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus set you free from the, the worst possible scenario ever and now because your worst possible scenario has been taken care of then you have no reason not to rejoice in every other situation, no matter what. So we get to rejoice in the Lord of the universe. Compare this for the Philippians who had lived under Roman rule for uh, hundreds of years at this point, a couple hundred years, and there was no Lord but Caesar. 
Caesar was the Lord. He was a God in their culture and in their nation. And you had to pay homage to Caesar, the Lord. That was his title. Caesar, the Kairos, the Lord. And then in Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian partners who used to have their hearts and their their persons submitted under this Lord Caesar. Paul writes to them, Jesus, Lord, not Caesar, Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is why Paul says, rejoice always in the Lord, because if Jesus is your Lord, then he's also your savior. So are you a person that can truly rejoice in the Lord? Like when when Paul tells us this today, is that true of you? Can you actually do that? Have you been set free from the, the payment of your sin? Because if that hasn't happened, then this is impossible. You can't rejoice in the Lord. You'll only be heavy under the Lord. You'll you'll hide from the Lord. You'll run from the Lord. Because if you have not been set free, then you'll love the darkness, not the light. And if you have been set free, how often do you remember to rejoice in the Lord because of what he's done for you? How often? Sunday mornings, Christmas. Lastly, we rejoice in the Lord always. We rejoice in the Lord always. No matter the circumstance, we can always rejoice when we keep our eyes on Jesus. We can always rejoice. If you remember Paul in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, um, him and Silas had met with Lydia and then they were walking through the, the city streets for a couple of weeks and this slave girl kept following around and made Paul get to the point of casting the demon out of this slave girl. And that made the people in Philippi mad. And so they whipped and beat Paul and Silas and then they threw them in the inner prison in the stocks. And if you were here, however long ago that was that I got to preach Acts 16, I laid down on the stage and put my feet up in the air to demonstrate what an inner cell in a Roman prison would look like. I'm not going to do that again today because I'm sore. But they would be tied up by their feet, probably resting on their shoulders. And what are Paul and Silas doing in prison? They're whining and complaining about their situation. No, they're singing praises to the Lord. They're rejoicing always in their situation, in the midst of their situation. Their situation is not dictating their rejoicing. Their status before Jesus is dictating their situation or their rejoicing in the situation. So when Paul says in 129, you saw what conflict I was engaged in while I was there. He's looking back to the time when they were all standing around watching him get beat with rods and they'd be thrown into the inner prison. And some of them might have even heard Paul's voice lofting out of the prison singing that night. Paul says, you know how I lived. Brothers and sisters, we do not rejoice in our circumstances, meaning that we do not look to our circumstances to give us the source of our rejoicing. We rejoice in our Savior. We rejoice in the Lord because of the Lord, and we do it always, no matter what's happening around us. 
Because our rejoicing can never be taken away. It can, be never, it can never be snuffed out. We are an always rejoicing people. We can even have an array of emotions and still rejoice in the Lord. We can be sad and still rejoicing, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can be scared and yet rejoice. We can be afflicted in prison and yet rejoice. And brothers and sisters, the, the more that we learn to rejoice in the Lord, then we, like Paul, begin to rejoice in the circumstance that the Lord puts us in. So this is one of those times when we use in in a couple different ways. We don't rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in our circumstances. Okay, so the word in there, like we don't look to our circumstances to rejoice, to give us the source of our joy. But then we begin to learn to rejoice in every single circumstance that the Lord has put us in because he's sovereign. He's put you there. So Paul and Silas are praising God and they're rejoicing in prison because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And then Paul trusts that the Lord is going to use his suffering to advance the gospel. And so then Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because I first rejoice in the Lord and then I rejoice in sickness and then I rejoice in shipwrecks and then I rejoice in being hungry. I rejoice always. Just a few places throughout Philippians in 1 15 through 21. Paul chooses to rejoice in two things. There were some some people in Rome while Paul was in house on house arrest. Paul was a, a, a preacher man. He would go out and he would tell everyone everywhere about what Jesus had done. And when he got put on house arrest, it kind of made an opportunity for other people to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be cool like Paul. They wanted to go out and preach and people think that they were awesome. And Paul says that these are people with false motives and they're false motive preachers. False motive preachers preaching a true gospel. So uh, Paul says that these people are out preaching and they're trying to afflict me in my imprisonment. So people are going out to preach Christ for the purpose of afflicting Paul emotionally. Can you imagine like these guys, they get up in the morning, they eat their Wheaties and they're like, I can't wait to make Paul feel like a loser today. I'm going to go out and preach Christ. And Paul hears about this. And he says, actually, I rejoice. He says, what then? If Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. So again, what are his eyes focused on? Not the men's intentions of afflicting him emotionally, but what, is, what are his eyes set on? Christ being preached. And so again, he's rejoicing in the Lord. In the situation, he's like, hey, if people want to go and preach Christ and make me feel bad, good try, good on you. But I'm going to rejoice no matter what. And then the very next part of verse 18, he says, yes. You know what? I will rejoice. So I'll rejoice in the past and in the present and I'll rejoice in the future. Paul says in verse uh, chapter one, verse 18 and 19, that he's on trial and he is rejoicing because he knows that the Lord is going to deliver him from shame. Because when he has the chance to stand before Caesar, the Lord of the known world, the spirit and the prayers of the Philippians are going to help him to open his mouth and proclaim the gospel. So Paul rejoices in that situation, but he rejoices in the Lord. So what do we do when we feel worn down by others around us? 
When we're afflicted by other people's intentions or motives. Maybe it's uh, attacking. Maybe you get attacked by other people in your home or in your workplace. Maybe people are always grinding you down with their words or their passive aggressiveness. What do you do? Do you rejoice or do you begin to devise a, a get back at them plan? Do you feel the selfish ambitions of others affect you? Maybe other people are getting opportunities to proclaim the gospel and you're not. Maybe you're, uh, you're wanting to make cool connections with people across the neighborhood and you've tried and tried and tried. And then somebody else comes to church and like, listen to what I got to do. And you're like, that's not fair. I want that. Or you've tried to talk to somebody so many times. Time after time after time, you've labored to teach this person about who God is in the gospel. And then somebody else comes and one time they come and they're like, here's a Bible verse for you. And they're like, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. That changed my entire life. That's happened to me before. Just want to flip something over, right? I want to be the Hebrew, the Hebrew. I want to be the Hebrew. I want to be the hero. Are we rejoicing in any and every situation through Christ, in Christ, for Christ? In 2, 17 and 18, if you look there for a minute, he says, even if I mean poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me when I am being poured out upon the sacrificial or when you're being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of my faith. So this is a metaphor that Paul's using. Hey, we're in this together. If things go south and they kill you and they kill me, let's rejoice and be glad. All right. And if things go south and they kill me and then they kill you, let's rejoice and be glad together because this isn't about us. It's about the Lord. And this sacrifice, this suffering that we're living in, it's like a sacrificial offering. It's like a drink offering being poured out and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord and it's good. And so let's be glad and rejoice in it instead of sulk and wine in it. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. We rejoice in the Lord always, even when we're suffering. Do you feel like advancing the gospel isn't worth it? In your job, in your life, in your home, in your family, at your Christmas, at your family gathering, at your friend gathering, do you feel like it might be too costly? Would you not be glad and rejoice if you be poured out as a sacrificial offering upon the faith? Rejoice and be glad. In 4, 2 through 3, we already read this, when Paul exhorts Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he follows it up with rejoice in the Lord. And I think that disunity often keeps us from rejoicing or it clouds our rejoicing. Disunity in marriage, disunity between friends, disunity between church members, disunity between neighbors. Anytime that we choose to set ourselves at odds with someone else and we choose to disagree Rather than to agree in the Lord, it inhibits our rejoicing. And Paul tells Yodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord and now rejoice in the Lord. Actually, in verse four, chapter four, verse one, he tells all of the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord. 
And then in 4 verse 2, he says, Yodian and Tyche, agree in the Lord. And then in 4 4, he tells the whole church, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance. Are you being unified with the people around you in the Lord? Or do you put other things in front of you that unless they agree to what you agree to, you can't have agreement. And therefore, you would rather choose disunity than agreeing in the Lord. We can be so quick to put our eyes on circumstances instead of on Christ. But we always rejoice. What if we were just to like look around the church and we were to listen to all the situations that we're going through? Over the last five, ten years. And we just begin to, to piece apart. What was it like to rejoice in that situation? When that happened? Sickness, miscarriages, heartache, job loss, retaliation from people around us, discouragement. We would begin to see over this church that the Lord has been faithful in any and every situation. And there has never not been a reason to rejoice. I remember one time for me, I was in India. Uh, this is in 2012. I got to be there for about five months. And it was the greatest, most difficult five months of my life. We were in India seeking to advance the gospel through remote villages in the Himalayas. And we had inexpressible joy in suffering while battling sickness, hiking about 10 to 13 miles a day, bad, bad food, blisters, cold weather, Language barriers and rejection. And I remember being in India and I remember that I absolutely loved every minute of it because there was constant opportunity to rejoice in the Lord. Constant opportunity. Even when I was throwing up or other things were happening. There was like a, an underlying rejoicing happening. And I'd, I'd never been in a situation like that before in my life. There's spiritual oppression all around us. We were often scared. We were often sick. We're often tired. We're often misunderstood. We had to endure cold nights, blisters, talks with the police. But what a time of rejoicing for my team and I. Just an underlying rejoicing all the time. So we rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in gospel advancement. We rejoice in God's people. We rejoice in gospel partners. And the Lord has also set this up that we find joy in these other circumstances. But our joy always comes in and through and because of the Lord. Always. So we don't rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in our circumstances. So how do we do this? How, how do we do that thing? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, as we, look to things not, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is how we can be always rejoicing. If we set our eyes on Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, So what are we learning? No matter the circumstance, we get to rejoice in the Lord. We get to have great eternal reason for rejoicing in him, no matter 
what's going on, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what we've seen, no matter what's happened to us, prison, others seeking to bring emotional affliction, possible death times three, even in and through disunity, we rejoice. We're a rejoicing people. So you're rejoicing rhythms. How, how do you remember to rejoice? Because if you're like me, on a daily basis, this is the fight. And I believe that this is the underlying fight that wins all other fights. And I believe that's what Paul's trying to say here. If you can rejoice, and if you will rejoice, you will win every other battle. Like Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness or gentleness or forbearance be made known to everyone. You can't do that if you're not rejoicing in the Lord. Or in 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can't do that if you're not rejoicing in and through and because of the Lord. So this is the underlying battle for all battles in our lives. So how are you doing? Are you rejoicing? What are you rejoicing in? Are you rejoicing in the Lord? Can you even rejoice in the Lord? Has, have you been changed? That you even desire to rejoice in the Lord? Do you, have you had the moment when you saw Jesus come and take your penalty of your sin that you deserved and he took it away from you and he gave you his righteousness and he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit? Has that happened for you? If so, then rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. It's a slow road, isn't it? It's a slow road. Because throughout the day, we're battling to set our eyes on things that are unseen, not on things that are seen. This is the whole like, story of the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, My prayer for you all is that your love may abound more and more, so that with all knowledge and all discernment, you may approve what is different. Or what is excellent, so that you may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says all of this thinking stuff is connected to your ability through God, through Christ, to have knowledge and discernment about the situations that you're in. Your knowledge and discernment to, or knowledge and, and wisdom about discerning your situations. And that God uses different kinds of situations, excellent situations, to advance the gospel through your life. Like prison, right? Prison, bad. Paul's mind, prison, good. Death, bad. Paul's mind, death, good. Paul says Epaphroditus walking 900 miles with money so that Paul can buy food. That sounds like a bad situation. Paul says, no, that's an awesome situation because we're learning to put our hope and trust and faith fully in Christ and what he's doing to advance the gospel. And he wants to do that in your life. So brothers and sisters, where are we most tempted to not have rejoicing in our lives? Where are we most tempted to complain or argue or sulk or not trust God's plan in the situations that he's put us in? Like J.D. shared, he is sovereign over everything. He's in control. God is in control. And so in the midst of those situations, are we trusting? Kids, family, work, church, neighbors, marriage. If we looked at the things that are seen, we would always have reason to not rejoice. 
right? If we looked at the things that are seen, we would always have reason to not rejoice. And too often, we only have eyes for things that are seen. We only judge other people. We only complain. We only worry. We are only anxious. And we don't have eyes to see the things that are unseen. And so we don't rejoice. But when we set our, th- our minds on things that are not seen, on eternal things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, then our hearts burst with rejoicing. Always. Is this you? Are you an always rejoicing person? If not today, you need to plead with the Lord to help you. Like seriously, like we as a church, if this isn't us, we need to plead with him. And every time we find ourselves not rejoicing, we need to get on our knees and plead for forgiveness. Lord, help me to see you, to know you, to understand you. Help me to rejoice in you in any and every circumstance. And Lord, rid my heart of the times that I tend to complain about everything. About cheese on my burrito. About a short nap. About waking up early in the morning when, Jesus, you've taken care of my eternal destiny and you've given me your righteousness. Therefore, I will rejoice in any and every situation. And Lord, if you want to use my life to advance the gospel, so be it. Because by any means necessary, I and we should want to become like Christ. That's what he says in chapter 3. He says that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, we must be a rejoicing church, a joyous church. What if that was the mark? Like when people look at Central Baptist Church, they say, why are those people always rejoicing? Why is there always joy in that church? What's the secret? What's going on there? Because we have such a great Lord to rejoice in. And we know it. We see Him. We understand Him when we're growing in Him. No matter the circumstance, we always get to rejoice. We need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's help to see Him at work. To have keen understanding and discernment about every situation that He would place us in. And that He is using it to advance the gospel. No, how not... Not, no matter how small the situation might be, the Lord is using that for your good and for his glory. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on Jesus. And will you have a continual, joyful disposition toward the grace of God in your life? I'm pleading that with you today. That, that would be true of you, that you would have a continual, joyful disposition toward the grace of God in your life. Because his grace is great. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that we can be an always rejoicing people because you have taken care of our greatest need. And now every every other thing that happens, it it wouldn't even matter. But Lord, you have promised to provide everything that we need. Just as Paul says later in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, I've learned what it is to abound and I've learned what it is to be brought low. I've learned about sickness and health and much and little And the secret in any and every situation is that you are our strength. We don't look to our situations to give us strength. We don't look to food to give us strength. We don't look to water. We don't look to sleep. 
We don't look to people. We don't look to movies. We don't look to rest. We don't look to pleasure. We look to you for our strength. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Lord, you are good to have given us all things and to have forgiven us of all things and to give us your righteousness. Lord, help us to be an always rejoicing people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.